Brian McClanahan Show, episode 284. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. You'll find all those social media buttons at my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com where it's always free to enroll or brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. While you're at brianmcclanahan.com, click on that shop tab. You get all your Brian McClanahan show gear, apparel, stickers, skins for your electronic devices, all kinds of cool stuff. And of course, as always, please rate the show on your favorite podcast website, whatever that is. You can go to anchor.fm and you can uh, support the show there or leave a message. You might get on the Brian McClanahan Show. All kinds of great ways to do it. And of course, share it around on social media. That's the way we spread the news. That's the way we get people thinking locally and acting locally. All right, let's talk about the topic of the day, which is the Electoral College Part 2. Now, I've done several different things with the Electoral College. I've, I've done an entire episode on why the Electoral College is important. But there's a news piece now coming out um, just decided by the Tenth Circuit Court that the Supreme Court is going to hear a challenge to the way that states work the Electoral College. This is interesting because, of course, this could change the entire landscape. And so I'm going to talk about this um, from an originalist position. This is a federal versus state power issue, supposedly. Um, and I'm going to read part of the Tenth Circuit Court's decision. And I'm going to read a couple of uh, news articles about it. One from townhall.com, the other from NBC News. Um, so this is a big issue. We know the Electoral College is under assault. We know that the progressives would like to completely discard it. They want to do away with it because they think it's anti-democratic. In a way it is, in a way it's not. Of course, it does maintain the federal republic because the states have a primary role in the process. Uh, we know the founding generation did not think that direct democracy was a very good way to elect an executive. And the Electoral College fulfills that fear, or at least uh, reflects that fear, I should say, because you're not voting directly for the president, you're voting for an elector. And I'll, I'll get into some of this stuff in this uh, particular discussion. And all of this is being driven by a left-wing law professor who, the interesting part, the, one of the plaintiffs in the case didn't want to vote for Hillary Clinton. Uh, she wanted to vote for someone else. So this left professor saying, all right, well, I mean, this is, this is great. This is an opportunity to push what I want, which, of course, what he wants is to essentially get rid of the Electoral College. So the Electoral College, again, big issue. We're going into 2020. People are talking about it again. We know that Donald Trump won in the Electoral College, which is really all that's important. The United States Constitution does not require the popular vote. The states don't have to keep it. Nobody has to keep it. In fact, 
what you could really do is just vote for an elector. And, I, and I'll get into some of these things as we talk about it. So let's start. And this has to do with what are called faithless electors. So to set up what's happening here, states can decide how they're going to divvy out their electoral college votes. They have complete control over that, at least, I mean, this is what's at question here. This, this is the question. So the states can decide how the electors are elected. They can decide how those electoral college votes are divvied out, supposedly. Uh, this is being challenged. And then, of course, the Electoral College meets and votes for the president, whoever that person might be. We know the 12th Amendment. We know before the 12th Amendment, I should say, electors chose two people. The person who came in first was the president. The person who came in second was the vice president. Of course, the 12th Amendment changed that. So we no longer had that issue. You had to vote for president and vice president. Uh, but we saw in the 1800 election, this caused a tremendous amount of problems because... We had Jefferson and Aaron Burr in a virtual tie for the presidency. <clears throat> John Adams actually finished third, even though when you read in your textbooks, it's Jefferson versus Adams. Really, it was Jefferson versus Burr. And one of those two had to win, and the other one had to be vice president. And so that led to the very contentious 1800 election, which was not decided till 1801 by one vote, because James A. Byard of Delaware cast a blank ballot, and Jefferson wins by one vote took over 30 ballots to get to that point. And this was decided in the House of Representatives, whereas by state. So, I mean, the, the, the intent of the, of the founding generation is very clear. They wanted to ensure that the states were involved in the process. That is ex, that's, I mean, beautifully clear by the document and by the ratifying conventions and by the Philadelphia Convention. The states had to be part of this thing. Okay. But... Let's talk about this piece, <clears throat> these faithless electors, and these two uh, news news articles. And then, after the break, I'll get into the Supreme Court, the tenth, or I should say, the Tenth Circuit Court decision, which is going to go on to the Supreme Court, and we'll talk about how that works. So, first, this is by Pete Williams at NBC News. Faithless elector, Supreme Court will hear case that could change how presidents are chosen. Well, not really. It's not going to change how presidents are chosen. It's the, the title's a little misleading. The Supreme Court agreed Friday to take up an issue that could change a key element of the system America uses to elect its president, with a decision likely in the spring just as the campaign heats up. The answer to the question could be a decisive one. Are the electors who cast the actual electoral college ballots for president and vice president required to follow the results of the popular vote in their states? Or are they free to, to vote as they wish. A decision that they are free agents could give a single elector or a small group of them the power to decide the outcome of a presidential election if the popular vote results in an apparent electoral college tie or is close. Um, look, okay, I'll get into this in a minute. It's not hard to imagine how a single faithless elector voting differently than his or her state did could swing a close presidential election, said Mark Murray, NBC News senior political editor. America has never chosen its president by direct popular vote. Instead, when voters go to the polls in November, they actually vote for a slate of electors chosen by the political parties of the presidential candidates. Those electors then meet in December after the November election to cast their ballots, which are counted before a joint session of Congress in January. 
More than half the states have laws requiring electors to obey the results of the popular vote in their states and cast their ballots accordingly. The problem of what are known as faithless electors has not been much of an issue in American political history, because when an elector refuses to follow the results of a state's popular vote, the state usually simply the state usually simply throws the ballot away. The cases before the Supreme Court involved faithless electors during the 2016 presidential election. Instead of voting for Hillary Clinton, who won the popular vote in Colorado, Michael Baca cast his vote for John Kasich, the former Republican governor of Ohio. And in Washington state, where Clinton also won the popular vote, three of the state's 12 electors voted for Colin Powell, the former Secretary of State, instead of Clinton. Colorado threw Baca's vote out and for found other, another elector to vote for Clinton. Washington accepted the votes of his rebel electors, but fined them for violating state law. The electors challenged the fines, but the Washington State Supreme Court upheld the state law, requiring them to conform to the popular vote. The Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals in Denver reached a different conclusion, however. It said electors can vote for any legitimate candidate. Jenna Griswold, Colorado's Secretary of State, praised the Supreme Court's decision to hear the case. Unelected and unaccountable presidential electors should not be allowed to decide the presidential election without regard to voters' choice in state law, Griswold said. Okay, so I'm going to have to address that because they are elected. These people are elected. The problem is where we get into the political parties deciding these things. What really should happen is you're voting for an elector who pledges to vote for a person. So I'm a Donald Trump elector. I'm a Hillary Clinton elector. I am a a Colin Powell elector, whatever it is. That's who I'm pledging to vote for. It doesn't mean they have to. We know this. We know this from the way the Constitution was ratified and, of course, discussed in Philadelphia. We know that electors are free agents. You're voting for a representative to go and then vote, just as you do for any other member of Congress or anything else. We don't know how Donald Trump's going to govern once he gets into the executive mansion or Barack Obama or uh, George Bush or Bill Clinton. We don't know what they're going to do. I can say, I want you, Mr. Representative or Mrs. Representative, to go out and vote this way, but they don't have to do it once they get to Washington, D.C., because this is not direct democracy. And that's a good thing. We vote for the Electoral College. The parties should not have a role in this. The parties are, are a major source of the problem. The political parties, see what, what's happening here then. What would happen with this is you might have a situation where the political parties lose their stranglehold on the entire election process, which would be absolutely fantastic. States are free to choose their electors however they want, the court said, and it can even require electors to pledge your loyalty to their political parties. But once the electors are chosen and report in December to cast their votes as members of the Electoral College, they're fulfilling a federal function, and the state's authority has ended. This is what the Tenth Circuit Court said, and I'm going to read that. I'm going to get into the decision. The state's power to appoint electors does not include the power to remove them or nullify their votes, the court said. Because the Constitution contains no requirement for electors to follow the wishes of a political party, the electors once appointed are free to vote as they choose, assuming they cast their vote for a legally qualified candidate. The lawyers representing Colorado and the electors from both states urged the Supreme Court to resolve the question now, instead of waiting for a crisis that could come if a renegade elector's defection threatened to affect the outcome of an election. 
But the states and the electors disagreed on how the court should rule. Colorado's legal brief said that because the Constitution gives the states broad powers to decide how electors are appointed, it also authorizes the states to attach conditions to how they must vote. The American people choose the president while electors are mere agents who cast their electoral college ballots according to the will of the constituents, not the reverse. The Court of Appeals decision upsets over two centuries of practice covering all previous presidential elections, Colorado said. The lawyers of the electors are ever said tradition is not the same as the law. The structure of the Constitution, as interpreted by the Court for over 230-year history, prohibits the states from interfering with the exercise of this plainly federal function, said Lawrence Leasing, a Harvard Law professor involved in both cases. This is the, this is the guy that essentially wants to undo the Electoral College. Now, he wouldn't be undoing the Electoral College, and I'll read the town hall piece because it's a little different slant on this. Supreme Court ruled in 1952 that states do not violate the Constitution when they require electors to pledge that they will abide by the popular vote. But the justices never said whether it is constitutional to enforce those pledges. So what we have here is the Supreme Court in 1952 saying, yeah, the states can say you got to abide by the popular vote of the state, but what they're, but is there, can they fine people for not doing that? Is this really a state issue or is this a federal issue? I think leasing has kind of an interesting case here that because these people are following a federal function, and the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals agrees, because they're following a federal function, they're not really hidebound by the states any longer once they go and vote, meaning they are, again, free agents. They can vote for whoever they want. We know this has happened in history. And I'll explain with one of the more important elections. The Electoral College is unbelievably important to the mechanics of how we should we select a president, but it's almost a mystery. The Supreme Court has told us virtually nothing about it, and certainly the Supreme Court hasn't said anything, said Tom Goldston, a Supreme Court expert who co-founded the website SCOTUS blog and argues frequently before the court. The issue will hear the court will hear the issue in the spring and decide the case by late June. So, first of all, Tom Goldstein is saying the Supreme Court hasn't said, has said, told us virtually nothing about it, and certainly the Supreme Court hasn't said anything. This Supreme Court, well, who cares, right? I mean, first of all, that's part of the problem. The Supreme Court has to do this stuff. But regardless, who cares what the Supreme Court says most of the time? Now, townhall.com, this is by Bronson Stocking. And he has a few more quotes, one from Leasing. Now, of course, townhall.com is certainly a left I'm sorry, a right, a, a establishment conservative website. Though they, they do publish some good pieces here and there, um, and but you know, understand where this is coming from. And he's going to quote leasing more. And so, town hall, of course, is going to defend the electoral college and the states saying that electors have to vote a certain way. I, I mean, you're generally going to get the gist of that in this piece. So Bronson Stocking, on Friday, the Supreme Court agreed to hear a case that would decide whether Electoral College electors must vote for the winner of their state's popular vote. Half the states currently have laws requiring electors to vote for the candidate who wins the popular vote in the states. Um, electors do not vote in accordance to the winner of their state's popular vote are known as faithless electors. And he gets into the same thing that the NBC News piece said. But I want to skip down a little bit. 
he says, while states can choose their own electors and require them to pledge certain loyalties, once the electors form the electoral college, they are no longer serving a state function but a federal one. The Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals agreed with Justice Gonzalez's assent, ruling that electors can vote for any legitimate candidate they choose. The state's power to appoint electors does not include the power to remove them or nullify the votes, the Tenth Circuit declared. Just like Arizonans voted to send Jeff Flake to the Senate, but once there, the voters could not nullify Flake's votes or fine the senator for voting his conscience as much as the voters may have wanted to. And that's the point. I mean, I brought this up. In 1952, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that states' laws requiring electors to abide by the popular vote of the state did not violate the Constitution, but the high court never ruled whether the states can enforce those pledges after the fact. The lawyer for the Washington state electors, Harvard professor Lawrence Leasing, or Lessing, I should say, is hoping that the case will focus attention on what he characterizes as shortcomings in the Electoral College when it comes to reflecting the outcome of the popular vote. So here's the key to Lessing. Quote, it could also convince both sides that it is finally time to step up and modify the Constitution to address this underlying problem, Professor Lessing said. The professor suggested such fixes as a national popular vote plan or even a constitutional amendment. Of course he did, because really what happens is we just need to nationalize everything, according to Lessing. But that's not really the issue here. Because a Democrat lost the last presidential election, surely something must be wrong with the Constitution that allowed it to happen. The case goes before the court this spring, and the decision is expected by the end of June. So there's strong, uh, who is it? Who's this guy? Bronson Stocking, throwing his two cents in at the end. I'm going to talk about this, and I'm going to read what the Tenth Circuit Court, the most important part of it, once we get back after the break. I'll see you in just a, just a minute. Let me talk to you for a minute about McClanahan Academy. I know at the beginning of this particular podcast or this video, I talked about McClanahan Academy. But let me go into a little more detail about why I think you should sign up for it and why, and why I created it. First, a little bit about me. I have a PhD in American history from the University of South Carolina, and I've taught in the college environment for 20 years. And I've seen college students get worse over time, the curriculum get worse, and students are being indoctrinated more than educated now in our higher education system, whether it's high school or college. So I wanted a counterweight to that. And this is why I created the McClanahan Academy. Now, first, it's always free to enroll at McClanahan Academy. You sign up. It's free. And I give you a free course, 10 Myths of American History, when you do sign up. So it's a great way to get an introduction to what I do. But I've got eight courses for sale there and more forthcoming. All of these courses are designed to give you the non-PC version of American history, to take the red pill, so to speak. And I've got two courses in particular, my U.S. History Survey courses, which are designed for homeschoolers. So if you're a homeschooler and you want a good curriculum, and uh, my family has homeschooled all of our children from the beginning, and you want a solid history curriculum, that's why I designed the United States History 18, to 1865 and 1865 to present. You've got... Enough material, you've got lesson plans, you've got uh, tests, you've got reading material, you've got reading seminars, you've got 36 weeks, if you take them, buy them both, you've got 36 weeks of material, and it can be used as a high school history curriculum, or if you're just a lifelong learner, you can use it otherwise. But it's a great way to get a real history education devoid of Marxism and progressivism and political correctness. So sign up at mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. Again, always free to enroll. And I'll see you there. All right, we're back with the Brian McClanahan Show. 
talking about the Electoral College and this new faithless elector decision that's going to go before the Supreme Court. And now we're going to get into the meat of the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals decision and the history about this. And I think this is the most interesting part. These news stories from Town Hall or NBC News aside, what did the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals actually say about this? And, and what is their argument for having this decision overturned and then, of course, appealed to the Supreme Court? Is this really a state issue or is this a federal issue? What about electors? Before I get into that, and I'm going to talk about some of the history, one of the more interesting elections in American history is the 1872 election, where you have... Uh, U.S. Grant against Horace Greeley. Now, in this particular election, Horace Greeley um, is incapacitated before the Electoral College meets. And so, of course, the popular vote went for Horace Greeley, but the electors couldn't select him. I mean, he couldn't be president. He was, when I say incapacitated, he's dead. They couldn't vote for him, right? So before the Electoral College meets, Horace Greeley dies. Some electors chose to vote for Horace Greeley anyways, but others had to pick someone else. Now, if they had to go with the popular vote, they would have had to have voted for Horace Greeley. But we know, and you could say, well, this is circumstances beyond their control. The guy died. Regardless, they didn't have to vote for Horace Greeley. Uh, We know, for example, in several elections, we've had states split the electoral college votes before there was this popular vote thing. Uh, that was out there. Uh, We know, for example, in um, uh, when the Whigs became a political party in the 1830s, we know there was an attempt to try to split the election and say, uh, for example, 1836, uh, there was an attempt to try to do it. and try to get a series of candidates so that the election is thrown to the House of Representatives. Martin Van Buren ends up winning, but regardless, it didn't work. But there was an attempt to do this, so states were splitting out their electoral college votes already. And the popular vote wasn't even counted until 1824. We know in 1824, we had a variety of candidates chosen by electors. It wasn't Winner take all in every state. The elector chose who they wanted to once they got into the college and they voted. We know this is historically the case. Electors could do whatever they wanted to do. It didn't matter what the state popular vote was because you know what? The state doesn't even have to count the popular vote. This is the issue. And I'm going to talk about that at the end of this and what I think should happen with the electoral college. And what would really make all the progressives absolutely furious, but of course would be beautiful because it would follow the Constitution as ratified. So this is from the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. And it's near the end of the document. Number two, use of elector in the Constitution. Mr. Bach also points out the use of the word elector elsewhere in the Constitution as support for his position that electors may vote freely. This approach is sound because, quote, when seeking to discern the meaning of a word, and the Constitution is no better dictionary than the rest of the Constitution itself. This is from Chief Justice John, I'm sorry, C.J. Roberts, excuse me, dissenting. Uh, see also United States versus Verdugo Eurydice from 1990. 
recognizing that when a term such as the people is being used as a term of art employed in select parts of the Constitution, that term should be given the same meaning in each context and contrasted with the use of other terms. The term electors is used in Article I of the Federal Constitution. Members of the House of Representatives are chosen every second year, every year, every second year, I should say, by the people of the several states and the electors in each state shall have the qualifications requisite for electors of the most numerous branch of the state legislature. The term electors, as used there, refers to the citizen voters who choose the persons who will represent them in the House of Representatives. The term electors is also used in the 17th Amendment. Although senators were chosen by the legislature of the states at the time of the founding, the 17th Amendment now requires senators be elected by the people of the state. As with the House of Representatives, Senate electors in each state shall have the qualifications requisite for electors of the most numerous branches of the state legislature. So the Tenth Circuit Court said it's beyond dispute that the electors, and under Article 1, Section 2, Clause 1, and the 17th Amendment, exercise unfettered discretion in casting their vote at the ballot box. And these are the people that vote. It is a fundamental principle of our representative democracy, embodied in the Constitution, the people should choose whom they please to govern them. The right of the people to vote freely for the candidate of one's choice is one of the, of the essence of, demo, of a democratic society, and the restrictions on that right strike at the heart of representative government. Reynolds v. Sims, 1964. Not only can the right, of the vote, uh, right to vote not be denied outright, it cannot consistently with Article One be destroyed by the alteration of ballots or diluted by stuffing the ballot box. Ballot box. Westbury v. Sanders, 1964. The freedom of choice we ascribe to congressional electors comports with the contemporaneous dictionary definitions of elector discussed above. Because we treat usage of a term consistently throughout the Constitution, the use of elector to describe both congressional and presidential electors lends significant support to our conclusion that the text of the 12th Amendment does not allow states to remove an elector and strike his vote for failing to honor a pledge to vote for the winner of the popular election. Instead, the 12th Amendment provides presidential electors the constitutional right to vote for the candidates of their choice for president and vice president. Well, now this is interesting. In summary, the text of the Constitution makes clear that the states do not have the constitutional authority to interfere with presidential electors who exercise their constitutional right to vote for the president and vice president candidates of their choice. The 10th Amendment could not reserve to the states the power to bind or remove electors because the Electoral College was created by the federal constitution. Thus, if any such power exists, it must be delegated to the states by the constitution. But Article 2 contains no such delegation, nor can the states' appointment power be expanded to include the power to remove electors or nullify their votes. Unlike the president's right to remove subordinate officers under his ex executive power and duty to take care of the laws of the constitution are faithfully executed, the states have no authority over the electors' performance of their federal function to select the president and vice president of the United States. And a close reading of Article 2 in the 12th Amendment reveals that the state's delegated role is complete upon the appointment of state electors on the day des designated by Congress. Once appointed, the Constitution ensures that electors are free to perform that federal function with discretion, as reflected in the 12th Amendment's use of the term electors, vote, and ballot. As we now discuss, this conclusion is further supported by the circumstances around the enactment of the 12th Amendment, as well as historical practices and sources. So this is a really interesting, and I'm going to read this part of the 12th Amendment in a second too. This is really interesting. Because what the court is arguing, to put it into you know, 21st century American, is okay, the states do have complete power over the choice of electors. 
They have complete power over it. Not the political parties, but the states. So the states can say, okay, we can divide how we vote for electors. We can say we're going to vote for this. There's going to be a winner-take-all system for this, or whatever the case may be. There's not, let's say there's nine electors. We can divide up seven of those if you have nine, you know, nine members of Congress. We can divide seven of those into legislative districts. So each one comes out of those legislative districts. Then we have two at-large electors. And we can say, all right, these electors, um, you have to pledge to vote whoever wins the popular vote of the state. But these other people, you could say, all right, well, you divide it up and you have to pledge to support whoever wins the popular vote of your congressional district. Or the states could say we have nine electors uh, and all these nine electors have to vote this way or this way to pledge the popular vote. But these people, once they are now chosen, can do whatever they want without a fine because we cannot fine as as the piece of town hall said, we can't find a, find a senator or a member of the House of Representatives for voting the way they want. We can't find the president for voting a different way than what we want. This is representative government, not direct democracy. That is the problem with this. And I tend to agree with the Tenth Circuit Court's ruling here. So while I am certainly a proponent of state power, the states can choose how these things are done. And I'll talk about what they could do to work around this. But still, the electors can vote for whoever they want once they get into the behind the curtain, so to speak. Because that's what we do. We can walk up to the we can walk up to the polling place. We can the the news can be out there in these uh, exit polls, or you know, right there, and they could say, "Who'd you vote for?" And I, I could say, "Well, I voted for Hillary Clinton, but really, I voted for Donald Trump." Or I could say, "I voted for Donald Trump, but really, I voted for Hillary Clinton." Nobody knows. Nobody knows. That cannot be controlled. So this gets to be an interesting situation. Now, let's talk about the court and the 12th Amendment. The historical impetus for enactment of the 12th Amendment provides additional support for our conclusion that presidential electors are free to exercise discretion in casting their votes. As noted under Article 2, Section 1, as originally written, the electors of each state did not, have, did not vote separately for president and vice president. Each elector voted for two persons without des- designating which office he wanted each person to fill. Under this system, if all electors of the predominant Predominantly predominant party, excuse me, voted for the same two men, the election would result in a tie and be thrown to the House, which might or might not be sympathetic to that party. This is exactly what happened in 1800. The electors' vote resulted in 73 votes each for Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr, 65 votes for John Adams, 64 votes for Charles Pinckney, and one vote for John Jay. Because two individuals received votes that constitute a majority of the electors appointed, but tied for the number, it was up to the House of Representatives to choose one of the two as president. It took the House 36 rounds of voting to select Thomas Jefferson as president. The 1796 election resulted in a different problem. Federalists urged their electors to support John Adams and Thomas Pinckney, while anti-Federalist Democratic Republicans urged support for Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr. But roughly 40% of electors ignored this party guidance. Instead, many Federalists electors, mainly from New England, withheld votes from Thomas Pinckney to ensure that Thomas Pinckney did not receive the same number of votes as John Adams, thereby guaranteeing John Adams the presidency. As a result of this plan, John Adams received 71 votes, while Thomas Pinckney received a mere 59 votes. But this plan backfired in part because Thomas Jefferson received 68 votes, thereby finishing ahead of Thomas Pinckney. In the Electoral College, 
consequently resulted in a president who, although disclaiming political affiliation, strongly favored Federalists, serving with a vice president who was the leader of the opposing party. As the Supreme Court has recognized, this created a situation that was manifestly intolerable. The Twelfth Amendment was brought about as a result of the difficulties caused by the procedures set up under Article 2, Section 1. These difficulties are highlighted by the split-party presidency resulting from the 1796 election and the 36 rounds of voting it took for the House to resolve the 1800 election, but the historical context of the amendment also informs the present question. Interestingly, the 1796 election produced what is today considered a novelist vote. Samuel Mills voted for Thomas Jefferson instead of John Adams. Samuel, I'm sorry, Miles, I should say. Samuel Miles led a slate of 15 presidential electors running on the Federalist, Federal Republican ticket. This slate of Federalist electors made one commitment, approving of George Washington and his policies. The electors will be expected to give their suffrages in favor of men who will probably continue the same system of wise and patriotic policy. This made no specific commitment to John Adams, but it was largely understood that John Adams fit this bill. And Thomas Jefferson, a man of very dissimilar politics and a firm Republican, did not. At the time of the 1796 election, Pennsylvania used a popular vote to select its presidential electors. But state law gave the governor only a short window in which to certify the winners of the race, even if all the votes had yet to be counted. By the time that window closed in 1796, 13 of the 15 Jefferson electors had received the most votes. But because votes from Greene County had yet to be returned, Samuel Miles and Robert Coleman, two of the electors from the Federal Republican slate, had eked out a victory. Once the Greene County votes were received, it became clear that all 15 Jefferson electors should have won in Pennsylvania. The two excluded Jefferson electors went to Harrisburg and demanded to vote as presidential electors, but they were denied. Yet pressure ran high for the electors to fulfill the will of the majority, and Samuel Miles cracked and cast a Jefferson vote. This decision brought ire on Samuel Miles with a critic in a Philadelphia newspaper writing, what do, I, what do I choose Samuel Miles to determine for me whether John Adams or Thomas Jefferson shall be president? No, I choose him to act, not to think. The essence of the complaint was that Samuel Miles had violated the expectation that he would cast his vote for John Adams. Despite this experience, the 12th Amendment did nothing to prevent future faithless votes. That is a very interesting historical precedent. But again, there's others. There's others. People vote all the time. Now, what would happen generally is that people would know because there would be canvassing who would support what candidate when they went to vote for the Electoral College. But they don't have to vote that way. That's the that's the interest. They don't have to do it. They don't have to vote the way that they're chosen. And we know the founding generation supported this, or at least allowed it to happen, and nothing changed that. So the Electoral College... The electors can vote for whoever they want. I've been saying this for years. Uh, even in, in 2016, the electors could have gone up there and voted for anybody they wanted. And the states can't do a darn thing about it. They can say, you pledge to support this, but you can't find them. You can't do anything for it if they decide to, to cast a vote for someone else once they get to the Electoral College. Now, pressure and other things are going to determine. That's the same thing with Samuel Miles. Pressure determined he voted for Jefferson. But he didn't have to. There's always going to be that pressure. Do you want to, I mean, is this what you want to do? Do you want to throw the election? You want it? Because what's going to happen, of course, is that then it would go to the House of Representatives. Now, you see, this would be interesting in 2020. Let me explain the scenario in a second. Let me finish this out. Instead, the 12th Amendment changed only the balloting process, allowing electors to designate separately for vice president and president. 
Importance for, importance for our purposes, the 12th Amendment does not deviate from the original Constitution's use of elector. Nor does the 12th Amendment contain any language restricting the elector's freedom of choice or delegating the power to impose such restrictions to the states. Thus, the historical context of the 12th Amendment supports our textual conclusion that states cannot interfere with the presidential elector's votes and that presidential electors have the constitutional right to exercise discretion when casting their votes. It's not just a textual. It's the way the original Constitution was was actually written, right? We're going to have indirect democracy, representative democracy. But now this creates a very interesting scenario for 2020. The House of Representatives is controlled by the Democrats. However, each state only gets one vote. So how would that work? So if uh, several electors, let's say, We've got a situation where, uh, we'll, because this could this would be more realistic than Donald Trump, but let's say we get a situation where uh, we get whoever the Democrat wins the election, but the electors decide, no, I mean, we're not going to have that happen. We're, we're going to vote. We're going to split. We're going to splinter. And we're going to throw it. Or Donald Trump wins. We're going to throw it. We're going to throw it to the House. Now, how is that? How was that decided? The House gets to decide the election. Would the House then vote for the Democrat? Well, are there more Democrat delegations than not? That is the key question. Do the states, I mean, I'd have to look at this. I don't, I don't know right off the top of my head if the states are dominated by Democrats or if this is just, if, or if there's more Republican states than Democrat states, because that's going to be the key. I know that the, the Democrats control the House, but each state only gets one vote. So in split states, how is this going to work? This is a major question. A major question. So I think that the, the Lessing argument has merit. I think the Tenth Circuit Court has merit. I think all this has merit. And this, if we're looking at an originalist situation here, the electors can vote for whoever they choose. And the states really can't do anything about it. Uh, they get to decide how these electors are going to be elected, meaning and how are they going to be voted in districts? Is it at large, whole slate? So what the state should really do is say, okay, you're voting for electors. Let's vote for electors. You're not voting for Donald Trump. You're not voting for whoever else. You're not voting for the Libertarian, the Republican, the Democrat, the whoever. You're not voting for the Constitutional Constitution Party candidate or Reform Party candidate, the Green Party candidate. You're not voting for any of that. The Socialist candidate. What you are voting for is a state of, is a slate of electors who pledge to support X candidate. You vote for those electors. So what you're really doing, it doesn't even matter who's on the ballot for president. You're voting for, I mean, it does, because they would say they pledge to support that person. But what you've done now is completely changed the ball game. Because those electors, because I'm pledging to support John Kasich, right? So you could get that. But again, once they go to D.C., to cast the vote, they can do whatever they want. This is completely consistent with the Constitution. I think that the, the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals has ruled correctly here. The states have no control over that. Once those people go and cast their votes, this is 100% accurate. All right. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. <laughs>